The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. As we continue our passage-by-passage journey through the book of Acts, uh, of course, the next passage we come to is Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. And I'll just say here at the beginning that this is, without question, one of the most controversial passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. All right, the, the reason for that controversy, of course, is because of the phenomenon recorded here of the early Christians speaking in tongues, as it's often called. And that's a somewhat archaic phrase, I guess, that just refers to speaking in other languages, but not languages that you've learned. Now, instead, people speaking in tongues are supernaturally empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak in languages that they haven't learned. And so that's what we mean when we say speaking in tongues. And Christians today are all over the board when it comes to this issue. Countless books have been written about it. Uh, Countless arguments have taken place. And more than one denomination has split over this issue. Some Christians are convinced that the gift of tongues is no longer in operation today at all. And that any purported practice of tongue speaking is therefore either merely a psychological phenomenon or is even demonic. And yet other Christians argue that the gift of tongues is very much in operation today and that we need to be seeking it, that every Christian should be seeking to do so. And a few even take the extreme position that you're not even saved if you've never spoken in tongues. So as you can see, confusion abounds when it comes to this issue. And I think confusion is also a good word to describe how many Christians feel when they think about it. I mean, they haven't really studied enough to come to a dogmatic or settled conclusion about whether speaking in tongues still happens today or not. And so they're just sort of confused about it. Like they don't quite know what to think. Now, fortunately this morning, I'm gonna give you all the answers, right? (laughs) Everything you ever wanted to know about speaking in tongues will be thoroughly explained and everything that's been the subject of so much controversy for these past 120 years will be completely solved all in the span of 35 minutes or so, right? Obviously, I'm not really serious about that, but hopefully as we go through this passage, things can nevertheless become a little clearer and that this passage and my explanation can be at least somewhat helpful for you as we all consider this issue together. Now, the background here is that Jesus has just told his disciples that they're going to bear witness about his resurrection, first in Jerusalem, where they were located, and then eventually reaching to the ends of the earth. But he tells them before, before they even try to do that, that they first need to sit tight and wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And then after Jesus tells them all this, he ascends into heaven before their very eyes. That's Acts chapter 1. Then we come to Acts chapter 2, 
and find this written in verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, from these verses, we see the main idea of this entire passage, which is that the Holy Spirit came upon God's people like never before to mark the beginning of a new era. That's what's going on here. The Holy Spirit came upon God's people like never before to mark the beginning of a new era. Verse 1 says that this took place on the day of Pentecost, which is a Jewish harvest festival that was named because of the fact that it occurs 50 days after Passover, so 50 Penta. And suddenly, the text says, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. So wind in the Bible is frequently associated with God's presence and with God showing up to do something, as he certainly is about to do here. And we see in verse 3 that not only was there wind, but there were also divided tongues as of fire that appeared to the early Christians and that rested on each one of them. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, that you may remember that fire also is frequently associated with God's presence. Uh, one especially prominent example of that occurs when the Israelites are wandering around in the desert. Exodus 32, or 13, 22 tells us that during these desert wanderings, God's presence was with them in the form of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So God's presence was manifested at night in the form of a pillar of fire that hovered above the Israelite camp. But now, check out what happens in Acts 2. The fire of God's presence isn't just resting over the Christian community as a whole, but over every single one of these Christians individually. That's huge. You really can't understand the significance of this passage without understanding that. God no longer merely dwells in the midst of his people. He now dwells within each one of them. Each one has direct access to God and we might say in today's terminology, a personal relationship with God. The theological phrase for this is the priesthood of the believer. Every single Christian is a priest in the sense that we have direct access to God and enjoy his presence up close and personal. And to be more specific, it's the presence of the Holy Spirit that we enjoy. Uh, verse 4 states that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus promised the Spirit back in the previous chapter, and we now see that promise fulfilled. Now, this doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit wasn't actively working in people in the Old Testament. He certainly was. But now, the Holy Spirit is coming upon God's people 
in a new and much more powerful way. Again, as stated in our main idea, the Holy Spirit came upon God's people like never before to mark the beginning of a new era. And then as we continue reading, things continue to get more interesting. Uh, Verse four says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what in the world is going on here? Well, we get more details in verses 5 through 13. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. So these early Christians were proclaiming what verse 11 describes as the mighty works of God in languages that they themselves had never learned. And yet there were people in the crowd. Remember, there was a bunch of people gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost, right? That's why all these people were in town. And so there were people in the crowd from all of these places and who knew all of these languages and who were therefore amazed at the things that they were hearing at what was taking place. Now, some of them, it says, they mocked the early Christians, said they were filled with new wine. But others asked the question that perhaps many of us here today want to know the answer to as well. What does this mean? Isn't that a good question? Mary verse 12. What does this mean? Let's find out. Peter himself actually gives us the answer in verses 12 or verses 14 through 21. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Right? It's only nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter quotes the Old Testament prophet of Joel and explains that this phenomenon of speaking in tongues marks a new era 
in God's plan for the salvation of the world. And they are referred to in verse 17 as the last days. And in verse 20, as the day of the Lord. Uh, this is an era that began with Jesus ascending into heaven and that will one day conclude with him returning to this earth. And in this era, the text says in verse 17, God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. The word all there is quite significant. Not only will, or, or God's spirit will now not only come upon certain people at certain times. Now he'll now come upon all of God's people. Kind of like the gift of tongues, was, or the, the, rather the, the tongues of fire were above each one of them, right? It's communicating the same thing. Every single one of God's people will get to partake of his spirit in this new era. And so to give something of a summary statement here, the purpose of these early Christians speaking in tongues is to mark out a new era. An era in which all of God's people will get to enjoy his presence in an up-close and personal way. In addition, what we see taking place here is essentially a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. Uh, Genesis 11 describes how originally everyone in this world spoke the same language. But then, in their prideful ambition, they started building an enormous tower, referred to as the Tower of Babel, as an act of defiance against God. And so God scattered them throughout the world and also confused them so they spoke different languages and couldn't understand each other anymore. But now... We see a reversal of that, don't we? Instead of a hindrance to communication being established, it's overcome. And that's intended as a sign that the message of the gospel is about to be spread not just among one people or in one language, but rather, in the words of Acts 1.8, to the ends of the earth. And we see this gospel message described in shorthand in verse 21 of our main passage. Still quoting Joel, the Apostle Peter says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, Joel may have originally intended that word Lord to refer to God in general, but Peter here is applying it to Jesus specifically. And the subsequent verses that we'll study next week make that very clear. And so the way people can be saved from their sins and from the judgment their sins deserve is through Jesus. Right? Jesus existed as God from all eternity but came to this world as a human being. And the reason Jesus came was so that he could live a perfectly sinless life and then die on the cross to pay for our sins. See, we owed a debt 
to God's justice because of the sins we had committed. But Jesus paid that debt on our behalf. He endured the full force of the judgment of God against sin so that we wouldn't have to endure it. And then he resurrected from the dead three days later. And the result, as we can see clearly stated here, is that everyone who calls upon his name shall be saved. Calling upon the name of Jesus involves renouncing any confidence in our own works or our efforts at trying to get good enough for God on our own and try to make things right with God on our own and instead putting our full confidence in Jesus. It's in him alone. And that's the message of the gospel that God intends to reach to the ends of the earth. And the gift of tongues here in Acts 2 functions as a sign of that intention. In that is a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. Now we do see in the Bible that the gift of tongues continued even after this event here in Acts 2. Not only several other times at key points in the book of Acts, but apparently even as a regular occurrence in the early church. The portion of scripture that talks very extensively about that is 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Unfortunately, we don't have time this morning to explore those passages or those chapters in detail. But if you want to learn more about how the gift of tongues functioned in the early church on a more or less regular basis, then that is where you would want to look. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And I'll just mention very briefly that one important thing these chapters show us is that the gift of tongues didn't just have evangelistic value like we see here in Acts 2. It also had edifying value as well. In fact, it seems as though the edification of Christians may have actually been the primary purpose of the gift of tongues, or at least the purpose that receives virtually all of the emphasis in 1 Corinthians. Now, you may be wondering how the gift of tongues edifies Christians. That is a good question. Uh, how exactly does it help us and benefit us? And I know this might be surprising to you, but the answer to that question is highly controversial. Uh, some would claim that the gift of tongues edifies us in a way that, for lack of a better terminology, more or less bypasses our mind. Uh, that They say that our spirit experiences a kind of direct and mystical communion with God's spirit as we speak in tongues. However, others would say that that's not really possible and that in order to, uh, for the gift of tongues to actually have any edifying value for us, it would actually need to impress some kind of a message onto our minds and in a way that involves our cognitive capacities in order to build us up spiritually. But regardless of which of those two options you choose, I believe the important thing to understand is that the gift of tongues does go way beyond what we see here in Acts 2 and serves to build up Christians in some way. 
in their walk with God. And that leads us to the question that perhaps many of you have been waiting for. Is the gift of tongues still in operation today? Did it cease in the first century and with that first generation of Christians, as many Christians believe? Or does the genuine New Testament gift of tongues still exist today? And I'll just go ahead and give you a heads up here that what I'm about to say may offend some people. Uh, In fact, I think I might actually manage to offend everyone almost before the sermon is over. And I'll just say that, that's pretty good because usually, you know, a preacher can only manage to offend one portion of the audience on, on one side of the issue. But I think I might actually manage to offend people on both sides of this issue. So just consider that your, uh, your official trigger warning for the morning. So with regard to the question of whether the genuine gift of tongues is still in operation today... I do believe that the answer is yes. Now, I didn't always believe that. I used to be pretty close to a cessationist, which is someone who believes that the gifts have ceased after the first generation of Christians and after the biblical canon, all the books of the Bible were brought together. However, I was reading Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology several years ago, and he laid out uh, the teaching of 1 Corinthians 13 in a way that I just couldn't argue with. I was very uncomfortable with the idea of speaking in tongues and the other miraculous gifts because of the way I had seen such gifts abused in many churches. But I just couldn't argue with Wayne Grudem's exegesis of 1 Corinthians 13. So like anyone who's truly a Bible-believing Christian, I changed my position in response to what I perceived to be a convincing argument from Scripture. And here are the main contours of that argument. In 1 Corinthians 13, 8, Paul writes, Love never ends. As for prophecies they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So right away, we see that these three gifts, prophecy, tongues, and the gift of knowledge are going to pass away. So in one sense, we should all be cessationists, right? We should all believe that these miraculous gifts will cease one day. Says it right here. But the all-important question is when. (laughs) When can we expect these gifts to cease? Well, let's keep reading. For we know, that's the gift of knowledge, we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. All right, so that sort of answers our question. We're told that these gifts will pass away, when the perfect comes, right? See that there? The partial will pass away, the gifts will pass away when the perfect comes. But of course, we now have to ask, well, when is the perfect? Well, let's continue on. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. 
When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. In verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then when the perfect comes, if you look at the context, then face to face. Now I know in part. Then, again, the perfect, I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. So we're clearly told. We don't have to guess about what the perfect is. We're clearly told here in verse 12 what the perfect will be like. The perfect will be the time when we see face to face and when we know fully. And guys, there's just no way, in my opinion, that that, that could refer to anything other than the time when Jesus returns. I mean, we enjoy a lot of blessings in this life. The completed canon of scripture is a wonderful thing. We now have all the books of scripture. Praise God for that. But I'm sorry. (laughs) Seeing face to face and knowing fully can only describe our eternal dwelling. There's just no other interpretation for the perfect there that's even close to being plausible, in my humble opinion. And so the conclusion I believe we have to draw from 1 Corinthians 13 is that the gift of tongues and the other miraculous gifts along with that won't cease until the return of Christ. It's a good summary statement of the conclusion of that. The gift of tongues and the other miraculous gifts won't cease until the return of Christ. Because again, verses 8 through 10 tell us that they'll cease when the perfect comes. And then verses 11 and 12 define the perfect very clearly as the return of Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that everything that's claimed as the gift of tongues today or uh, is legitimately from God or is pleasing to God. I actually believe much of it isn't. And it also doesn't mean that we should expect every Christian or even most Christians to speak in tongues. 1 Corinthians 12, 30 clearly teaches that most Christians, or at least many Christians, do not possess that gift. But I do believe 1 Corinthians 13 is sufficient evidence that God intends the gift of tongues and the other gifts to be in operation on some level and to some degree until Jesus returns. By the way, let me also say that you don't have to believe this. All right, This isn't the official teaching of our church or a requirement for church membership or anything like that. It's just the interpretation of Scripture that I personally believe is the most faithful to the text. It's not something that we as a church want to divide over. In fact, there are, I'll just say, there are some rather significant disagreements among our church's elders about this very issue. And yet, even with such strong disagreements, we all, us three, still somehow manage to love each other (laughs) and to learn from each other and to labor side by side for the sake of the gospel. And so if we as elders can do that, I'll just say that you also, even those of you who might be more opinionated, you also can swallow your pride. See, I see it with a smile on my face, so it comes across easier, right? But you can, amen, you can swallow your pride, and you can do the same thing 
that we as elders are doing. So I am what is often known as a continuationist in that I believe that the miraculous gifts, including the gift of tongues, still continue today. And the reason I prefer the term continuationist instead of charismatic or Pentecostal is because I actually do have some rather significant concerns about the Pentecostal and charismatic movements as they exist in our country today. And I think I could even say I have grave concerns about these movements. Uh, Three grave concerns, to be exact. First of all, so this is where I offend the other half of people, right? First of all, from what I've observed, the Pentecostal and charismatic movements are breeding grounds for straight up heresy. Whether it's the word of faith movement and it's teaching that each one of us is a little God with the power to speak things into existence through our words, or whether it's the prosperity gospel that teaches that God promises all Christians earthly health and wealth and prosperity. These teachings are lamentably widespread in the Pentecostal and charismatic circles. And even though it's certainly true that not all Pentecostal or charismatic pastors are actively preaching these things, many of them at least still seem to be tolerating them in their churches easily enough, which I believe makes them complicit. If you as a pastor know of a heresy that is present and spreading in your local congregation, and you don't call that out, you're complicit. In addition to that, I also have grave concerns about the way in which many Pentecostals and Charismatics seem to elevate their spiritual experiences above Scripture. At the end of the day, they view their own experiences as self-authenticating rather than viewing the scriptures as self-authenticating. I mean, they say that they don't. I've never met one who actually says that they do that, but the more you, you talk to them many times, not, not always, but many times, at least the ones I've interacted with, they, they kind of do. <laughs> and uh, that is just nothing less than a recipe for disaster and for making, in some cases, even a shipwreck of your faith. Uh, our experience always, always has to be interpreted in light of Scripture, never the other way around. And then third, uh, the Pentecostal and charismatic approach to the Christian life short-circuits progressive sanctification. I know those are some big words, so here's what I mean by that. Basically, these movements teach that Christian growth, that's sanctification, right? Christian growth, they teach it happens primarily through a series of crisis experiences, such as a sudden baptism of the Holy Spirit subsequent to conversion, or some other kind of very dramatic spiritual experience uh, that basically instantaneously takes them from being here in their sanctification and brings them up to here. You know, it's like they're going along in their sanctification, maybe making a little bit of progress, and then all of a sudden, boom, something happens and they level up. Instantaneously moving from here 
to hear. And it could happen even, even several times. I think many, many of them, unfortunately, will orient their entire lives about, around seeking these grand spiritual experiences that, that bring these dramatic leaps in sanctification. And I'm not saying that God can't ever do anything like that. Uh, but the notion that that's normal in the Christian life, I think is, is just a, a very harmful notion because it, it takes our focus of what we need to be focusing on, the, the normal path to sanctification, and it distracts us from that. It distracts us from just the regular putting off and putting on like we see in Ephesians. It distracts us from using what are called the means of grace, things like Bible reading and prayer and Christian fellowship, those, those ordinary things which are the main components of sanctification, the main means by which sanctification is accomplished, it takes our, their, our focus off of those things. And so someone is preoccupied with seeking these grand, dramatic spiritual experiences instead of using the means of grace, the ordinary means of grace that the Lord has given to us. And so those are some of the concerns that I have about the Pentecostal and charismatic movements and why I personally prefer, strongly prefer, the term continuationist. And of course there are some notable blessings of the Pentecostal and charismatic movements as well. I don't want to leave out. I greatly admire, for example, their zeal for the Lord and their evangelistic passion and their genuine love for others and their emphasis on spiritual renewal. All of these things are very good and very commendable and are things that we need to try to learn from. However, when all is said and done, my concerns about these movements are so grave that even though I do believe the miraculous gifts continue to exist today, I just couldn't be a part of probably 95% of Pentecostal or charismatic churches. And I would like to also encourage you. I know everyone's listening to things on YouTube and different places, but I would just like to encourage you to be very guarded and discerning about being influenced in any unhealthy way by these movements. So care for them as dear brothers and sisters in the faith and uh, certainly be very careful not to misrepresent them in any way by implying that the extremes of these movements represent everybody in these movements. But at the same time, just be aware of the dangers and even the heresies that seem to be present and growing in many places within these two movements here. And above all, my encouragement for you this morning in light of everything we've discussed is to fix your gaze on Jesus. Can't go wrong with that. <laughs> the miraculous gifts are indeed incredible blessings that God has given to the church. And it's certainly not wrong, I don't think, to seek those gifts in prayer. But don't let that become your primary focus. Your primary focus needs to be not on the gifts, but on the giver. Seek Jesus 
above everything. Colossians 1 teaches us that he is the one who's the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. It's by him that all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, it says. It's also in him that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him that God reconciled to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. And the result, we're told, is that in everything, he might be preeminent. Jesus is preeminent in this universe, guys. Is he preeminent in your life? Is he preeminent in your worship of God and your pursuit of God? Is he foremost in your thoughts and affections throughout the day? You know, as I look at Acts 2, the thing that sticks out the most to me about the gift of tongues in this passage is that it ultimately has the effect of turning people's attention toward Jesus. Certainly captures people's attention. That's sort of the point of it. But it does so in order to give Peter a platform for preaching the gospel. As we're going to see him do next week when we cover the second half of Acts 2. So the gift of tongues was given here in Acts 2 in order to exalt Jesus and to put the spotlight on him. And so if you're going to be a true Pentecostal, that is, someone who properly applies what we see here in Acts 2, then you also need to be all about Jesus. Make him the center of your pursuits and the center of your life.